1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi,
2: everyone. Uh, welcome to the New Books Network. I am Emily Allen, your host for this episode. And with me today are our two guests, Dr. Charles Hiroshi Garrett and Dr. Carol J. Oja, editors of the book we're talking about today Sounding Together Collaborative Perspectives on U.S. Music in the 21st Century, published by the University of Michigan Press in 2021. And a little bit more about the book Uh, Signing together collaborative perspectives on US music in the 21st century is a multi authored collaboratively conceived book of essays that tackles key challenges facing scholars studying music of the United States in the early 21st century. This book encourages scholars in music circles and beyond to explore the intersections between social responsibility, community engagement, and academic practices through the simple act of working together. The chapters of the volume address issues of race, nationalism, mobility, cultural domination, and identity, as well as the crisis of the Trump era and the political power of music. Each contribution to the volume is written collaboratively by two scholars, bringing together contributors who represent a mix of career stages and positions. Through the practice of and reflection on collaboration, Sounding Together breaks out of long-established paradigms of solitude in humanities scholarship and works toward social justice in the study of music. And then finally, a little bit more about our guest, um, Dr. Cho- Charles Hiroshi Garrett, Professor of Musicology at the University of Michigan. And Dr. Carol J. Oja is William Powell Mason, Professor of Music and Professor of American Studies at Harvard University. So, welcome both of you to the New Books Network.
3: Thanks so much for having us, Emily. We really appreciate being here. Indeed, it's great.
2: Yeah, and I think our listeners will uh, enjoy getting to know you. And um, speaking of which, before we talk about the book, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about you? Um, We can start with you, Chuck, and then, Carol, you can go after.
3: Sure. Um, Well, as you mentioned, uh, I'm a professor of musicology at the University of Michigan. I've been there for maybe 10 or 15 years and um, study mainly music in the United States, Uh, pop, jazz, some other things. Um, I've also been involved uh, with the Grove Dictionary of American Music and a uh, longtime member of the Society for American Music as well.
0: And I can chip in about myself to say I teach at Harvard. I'm also um, the director of the humanities program at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. All of my research has been focused on music of the United States, but in many different ways and often with a cross-cultural or transnational perspective. Uh, My most recent book was about Leonard Bernstein's first Broadway show, On the Town, a World War II show that had a mixed-race cast, um, which was not written into the script or score. So it's a sort of exploration of what that meant racially at its moment in time. Cool.
2: Thank you both, um, for telling us more about you and now going to this current project, um, that you both kind of wrapped up over the last sh- this year. Um, can you talk about how this book, you know, sounding together got started and, you know, what was the process like of, you know, working on sounding together, putting everything together for you and your, um, contributors, uh, Carol, if you want to take this one.
0: Sure. Well, Chuck and I are longtime friends, and that really made the whole project possible in so many different dimensions. But basically, it unfolded in stages. And when we started, we didn't have the book that's now completed in mind at all. (laughs) That concept took shape as as we worked over quite a, a long span of time. So we began in 2011, writing a colloquy writing and editing a colloquy for the Journal of the American Musicological Society. Um, And that colloquy had to do with current issues in studying music of the United States as of 2011. So it was written during the Obama administration. Um, Then we convened a workshop at the Radcliffe Institute that was in the spring of 2017. Um, That opportunity just kind of sort of came up and we shared it and Um, At that point, Obama was gone and the Trump presidency um, had begun immediately before the workshop started. And the whole idea of identifying oneself as a scholar, I mean, as an Americanist had become really complicated in a MAGA climate. And so that group of friends and scholars whom we brought together for the workshop spent a lot of our time discussing that very issue and How do we not only identify ourselves, but how do we create scholarship that works toward change and contributes to a world that felt like it was sort of spiraling into chaos? Um, And as a result of that workshop, ultimately, we ended up with this book. And I can say, having been involved in other such projects before, multi-authored books can really be a challenge to complete. Um, This one, though, seemed to have a
3: life of its own and got done really pretty quickly. I think it's worth um, saying as well about the workshop and how everything came together is that we took uh, took our lead also from our contributors uh, at many moments. Uh, Carol already suggested that. But in even more specific ways, uh, it was a pair of contributors who, um, who contributed the book title. Um, for example, it was other contributors who really pushed the idea of making this an open access uh, initiative. Um, There were just great uh, ways that um, the contributors who ranged uh, in sort of career trajectory uh, and also in discipline very, very widely, um, we learned a lot from them. And uh, that was a big part of the project.
2: Yeah. Was there anything sort of in the um, journey that, you know, kind of surprised you? You know, was there anything that you kind of learned by collaborating with these different people along the way.
0: I guess I could jump in to say that I was surprised at how supple and flexible everyone was not saying that I saw our group of authors as just ossified (laughs) figures who would never change. Nonetheless, there, there were, there was a lot of very supple negotiating going on within pairs of authors among the group as a whole between me and Chuck and them. And um, the degree of
3: goodwill was was notable. I think it's also um, uh, worth saying that uh, when the contributors arrived at the workshop, they did not have prior plans to collaborate on their own projects. So that's something that actually developed in conversation and afterwards, um, it's kind of, uh, Surprising in retrospect uh, to imagine that uh, this many high powered scholars would be willing to take that opportunity. And um, for some of them uh, who've been publishing their own stuff for uh, decades, um, this was brand new and uh, just very experimental and had a great attitude.
2: Yeah, and your last point there kind of leads really well to my next question, right? It's how new and innovative this approach really is, right, for our discipline. Um, So Chuck, can you maybe kind of elaborate on that more and talk to us about, you know, the broader significance of this book, right, within the field of musicology in terms of this emphasis on doing collaborative work?
3: Sure. Uh, we went into the project knowing that collaborative work was fairly um, common well, extremely common in the sciences, um, becoming more common uh, elsewhere in Europe and Canada, um, in particular uh, in the humanities. Um, I know of scholars, or think of scholars uh, in Canada in particular who often team with uh, interdisciplinary duos or work with their students um, to publish, but uh, we hadn't seen as much um, support for collaborative research in the U.S. And we thought this was a really... Um, uh, a good time to uh, try to make that happen. Um, we do see it as a as a model of collaboration. Like it is, it, we see it as a as an example, in part, uh, or a um, uh, an experiment. Um, but there were also a number of textbooks, in particular, and some articles and books uh, that we could point to uh, that told us this, this might be possible. Um, we see this kind of collaboration in music education, in particular. I think it comes from uh, education studies, but this is not the kind of thing that we had done much um, in the past. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned, um, some of our authors, uh, even though you know extremely accomplished, uh, had never thought that this was the direction um, they might go. Um, you know, we we see it as. Uh, intellectually and methodologically exciting and holding great promise. And we, we think of um, collaborators in the book uh, as moving across time, um, uh, putting different kinds of disciplinary perspectives into conversation. Um, Carol and uh, her collaborator um, wrote a piece that uh, moves across cultures. Uh, it's bilingual in different ways. Um, and the research um, takes place uh, and took place uh, in, in uh, across um, continents. Um, so overall, we think that Sounding Together is the first multi-author collection of collaborative essays in, um, in uh, music studies. And uh, we hope it's uh, the first of many. And I'll just add a really
0: pragmatic point, and that has to do with increasing digitization. So without that, um, it would have been much tougher, if not impossible. It certainly would have taken a lot longer to complete this book. And things are still changing so that uh, Zoom within the last two years, which is essentially after this book was, while this book was in production, has become into more general usage um, that would have been a nice <laughs> tool to have handy as we were working on the book. So it's I, I think as time passes now and and digital tools are increasingly available and developed, created um, more collaboration of this sort, especially across big geographical um, spans, is going to be possible.
2: Yeah, that's very exciting. Um, and hopefully this book will spark ideas for, you know, other projects like this with these new tools that we've all been one way or another forced to deal with in some way. Um, so I'll be interested to see what kind of continues unfolding. Um, getting a little bit more into the book's content, right, you state in the introduction, quote, the process of working collaboratively emerges as a productive vehicle for collective action, whether expressed through the act of scholarly camaraderie or th- through directing responsibly." or responding directly, often pointedly, to the contemporary political climate, In quotes, So, Carol, um, can you address this and talk a little bit more about this, and how do you see the essays here accomplishing that?
0: Well, I, th- I think there are essentially two political issues here. One is the Trump presidency, which I've already mentioned and I'll say a little bit more about. Um, and the other is the discipline we're working within, um, musicology, and the sort of rules, the tacit rules that are in place in any discipline, um, what's considered viable and interesting and important at a given moment and what isn't. So um, with the Trump presidency, um, it was having a very big impact on all of us when we had that, that workshop. Um, with, from Trump's ultra nationalism, his attacks on women, on people of color, on immigrants, um, on the basic tenets of civil society. That in turn made the whole notion of being an Americanist, as I mentioned at the opening of this podcast, um, uncomfortable. Um, so that in turn, I think, set us thinking about the position of an Americanist within the discipline of musicology and how that's changed over time. So for decades, um americanists were outsiders i mean really subaltern just not 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 part of the club um and in the 21st century that status has changed remarkably and americanists have moved from the margins to somewhere that might not be the center but at least it's something somewhere on the the playing field so we were we as americanists were just getting to a point of feeling perhaps a little stronger Maybe not feeling powerful, but at least beginning to think that some sense of equal status with our colleagues was was really possible. Um, and then, um, with with the ultra nationalism nat- nationalism of the Trump era, um, being an Americanist then suddenly became really uncomfortable and really difficult. And but did so for a whole new set of reasons. So in some to me anyway, kind of natural way, this whole concept of working with colleagues, you know, sharing generational, cross-cultural, cross-disciplinary perspectives, made it possible to kind of confront that moment in time, um, find a new way to be an Americanist and find or hope to look for some ways of facing the many serious challenges that our country is confronting. I
3: think it's worth saying, also, that the book, uh, the book took its final polished shape during the pandemic, um, but a lot of the essays and a lot of the collaborations, um, the ideas for what people were, were going to do, uh, much of that was settled um, before the pandemic really took over, and I. So it's an it's an interesting book in the sense that um, it is, I think it's really of our time and of our moment, um, but it isn't. It isn't pondering um, so much uh, what um, what impact the pandemic has had. At the same time, I think that the the experience of the pandemic and doing a collaborative book in that process maybe maybe this is mostly for uh, Carol and me, but I think it was true for some of the um, uh, some of the essays that kept being revised or being revisited uh, during the process. Um, I think the just the idea of working collaboratively during a time where people often felt separate or isolated or alone, um, it was it was a nice thing to return to and I think it gave a little bit more commitment for some of our authors uh, to really come through in part because they were working in a team, um, in part because uh, they, had responsibilities um, to other people in the project, whether the editors or whether they're a collaborator. Um, and I think uh, I think I, I think our collaborators had a, a really um, good spirit about the project as being something meaningful uh, that they could be part of uh, during an era that was really uh, really hard.
2: Yeah, I was thinking about that, like the timing of its release in 2021, and all that very timely. And I think it'll resonate with a lot of people. um, Like you were saying, given what we're going through right now. Um, And also too like, for those of us who are, you know, continuing or starting to do, you know, collaborative work in these times, um, reflect, this is a question for both of you reflecting on what you've learned from working on sounding together. Um, do you have advice for those of us who, you know, are interested in doing collaborative projects, especially in musicology? Um, so if you both can respond, maybe Carol first and then Chuck second.
0: Well, uh, A basic point is to choose your collaborators very carefully and thoughtfully. And another basic point is to be completely responsible and following through with your part of the work. Now life can intervene for any of us. And so deadlines that are set at one moment might not be viable as that moment approaches, especially when you multiply it by two lives. So you have two sets of potential interruptions that are going to come along, and yet somehow communicating openly, thinking ahead, you know, trying to discuss a working strategy before you get started, which I would have to say for the collaborations I've done is a principle I have in mind, but it's just so hard to anticipate what might happen up ahead that basically I think at the start, all you can do is to sort of get a communication method open and just a sense of how you connect with one another and how you might handle possible snags. Um, I would say for me with this book, um, I worked with Misako Ota from Kobe University in Japan, and we have collaborated previously. So we know one another's strengths and weaknesses and working rhythms. We have a whole method and time of day when we can connect on Skype with our 13-hour time difference. Um, we've also, we're also close friends, and over time we've built up a lot of trust. Um, and I can say that for me, working with her, I have learned so much in a way that it, simply because she's from another culture um, that I could not have begun to have done otherwise. And it's just, it's been really gratifying. Um, my other collaborator in this book was Chuck. Um, And there, too, we had a foundation in place in terms of having known one another for a while, of friendship and of trust. And I learned a lot from him, too. I mean, we have we're both a bit um, obsessive, I would say. Sorry, Chuck. (laughs) Um, But, you know, we, we for me anyway, working with him expanded my own work habits, my intellectual perspectives. And it was just a lot of fun. And I will just single out one other pair of collaborators in our book because I found what they did to be so fascinating, and that's Rachel Wheeler and um, uh, and Sarah Irley, who write about um, European colonial hymns that have become central to certain Native American communities. And so their work has this historical perspective going back a couple of centuries. Um, So they work across time, they work across disciplines, and they brought their work up to the present by um, collaborating and expanding the collaboration to include Mohican-descended communities and musicians. I mean, it's just a marvel of, of doing historical work, trying to reconstruct, <coughs> excuse me, reconstruct a tradition, and reaching out to the descendants and being responsible to them.
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
3: I want to comment a little bit on the work process and um, and relationship uh, between uh, Carol and me because I, I I'm not completely comfortable with the description before. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I I um one of the fun things, most fun things uh, about working with Carol is even though we are located in the same time zone we work at different times of day. And one of the fun things about working at different times of day with a collaborator, especially if you're dealing with um, uh, shared Google Docs or other kinds of um, uh, shared access to things, is that um, your collaborator can be accomplishing all the things you couldn't uh, during times that you are not even paying attention to the project. Uh, So there were um, many moments, I think, that. I think it's true for both of us when we would log in um, to find a sentence that had been cured um, or a phrase that had been added to make something actually make sense uh, in ways that were surprising um, and fun. And There there are moments in the book, in the parts that we wrote together, um, there are moments I think that we recognize as something we wrote and something we remember kind of having figuring out the problem. There are also many moments in the book and many um, words and phrases where we have no idea who wrote uh, this piece or that. Um, one, one thing that is, uh, I think, more true of our collaboration than some of the other ones in the book, it depends on the essay, but I think it's more true of our collaboration uh, is that most of our language is synthesized so it's somewhere between us or it's somewhere um, representing both of us as opposed to feeling like I wrote the first five pages of a section and she wrote another five pages of a section. And that is quite a kind of, um, uh, there's a scholarly growth in, in, and intimacy to that that is um, not something you get to experience very often. And it uh, it makes the book feel like it is a collaboration and not um, uh, not a product that two people are working on separately.
2: Yeah, and your last point there, um, I wanted to hear a little bit more about that, right? Like sort of the different way each chapter or essay, if you will, you know, the way the authors chose to incorporate their voices, right? You just talked about how y'all section sort of is somewhere between both of you, right? And then there are other essays, it seems like that there's a one section by one author, and another by another, and then also there, you know, interview approaches. So can you talk, you know, about a couple of different examples um, of these formats, Chuck?
3: Sure. Um, there's some really interesting, uh, both intellectual approaches and writing approaches that happen in different ways uh, in, the, uh, in the volume. One, one great example is a piece by uh, Glenda Goodman and Sam Parler, uh, where, um, in some ways, they're writing separately about topics that they really understand, um, uh, one from uh, early American music history and one from recent uh, country music history. Um, and they're kind of coming together uh, in the in the piece and stitching, um, kind of trying to figure out how those pieces go together. Um, that, I would say, is um, an example of uh, kind of writing apart and then figuring out how to make the research really work together. Um, they also did something really interesting by um, establishing a, a reading list before they started the project. Uh, that was... That's one way that some authors uh, kind of figure out how to get um, to share a foundation as a project's getting started. Um, there are a lot of pieces uh, in the Sounding Together that use a more synthesized voice. I think Carol and I uh, tried to do that. Lauren Kajikawa and Daniel Martinez hosang also do that with um, uh, basically presenting what feels like a single voice. It seems to us when we we read it as being very consistent and perspective and tone, and it has to do with the fact that they're talking about a shared experience um, in team teaching. So this is kind of in writing the idea of how to synthesize that experience. Um, I'll mention two others uh, which are curious also. Um, Alejandro Madrid and Josh Kuhn present a dialogue. Um, it could be it, it it reads as if it could be um, the trans transcript of a um, a radio conversation uh, or a podcast that they've done. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how they con- constructed it. It could have been in a shared document or it could have been ex- uh, sequential um, emails. Uh, but it feels like a, a conversation between um, uh, established scholars in slightly different fields about challenges in, in U.S. music scholarship. And then the one other thing um, I mention is we have, a, we have a piece, I guess, two pieces in the, um, uh, in the book that act as one or act together uh, by Braxton Shelley and Cheryl Townsend Gilks, which is um, Shelley writing an essay on race and gospel music in the U.S. Uh, and Gilks, um, reflecting on that. So it is a um, it's kind of a call and response piece um, that they did not draft um, together, but instead thought of as a collective project where one would um, uh, take a stand on some issues, and then the other, who is uh, both a colleague and friend and uh, senior faculty and a mentor, um, would comment uh, on that on that essay. So, various ways in which um, the perspectives and the language um, from different authors uh, is acknowledged and, um, uh, and shows up in the book.
2: Yeah. And then Carol, I wanted to return to a point you were bringing up earlier, which is sort of like the digital components, right. Of this project and um, whatnot. So, you know, for instance, the book's webpage has been viewed as of November 19th. 1357 times, right? So um, as, and there's some supplemental media on on that webpage, so kind of returning to your point earlier about, you know, the different tools we have, how do you see this book, you know, being used as it continues getting traction like that being an open access text and, you know, what have been your goals for this publicly accessible research or reaching outward, if you will?
0: Well, open access It's almost utopian, isn't it? You know, it's a kind of ideal for scholarships, hard to achieve, um, very desirable. I think, especially so in a world when um, there are so many paywalls, so many ways that one is blocked from information, and this just dissolves that issue completely. Um, It's good for students. Will make our book more usable in courses and seminars. Um, I wish all scholarly publications could enjoy this. Um, Yet doing achieving open access means that you have to have someone make a financial investment. Um, University presses operate on a a very tight margin. Um, They can't just afford to give away all their their, uh, products. Um, So in our cases, we're lucky to work for two large major universities. So we were able to get each of us to get grant funding from our universities to contribute to uh, the open access agenda, and it was enough to, to make it possible. Um, how that happens generally, I mean, I wonder if our professional societies, as they raise money, could start making open access grants uh, a possibility. I, I don't know, we need, we, we need some brainstorming about it. Uh, the cost of university, Books, University Press books is only going up um, for all the reasons that we know about in terms of just the the financial strains that they are facing. Um, And some new method (laughs) of getting the word out and making what we write available is very much needed.
3: I think it's worth mentioning that uh, when I applied for the the grant at the University of Michigan, and this is a book published by University of Michigan Press, there was no checkbox or no um, way to indicate on uh, on the application form that it was for an open access project, and uh, I had to nudge people and ask administrators whether they would accept um, uh, the grant application. Um, they ended up accepting the grant application, but I don't. I'm not convinced that they that they. Um, uh, that they approved it because it was open access. I think they found other reasons uh, that they felt were necessary to do that. So as, as Carol mentioned, it's uh, there's a systematic issue or a systemic issue with uh, trying to support these um, projects. It still needs to be um, addressed. I do wanna say uh, that our editors, uh, both Mary Francis, uh, uh, former editor at at, uh, Michigan and Sarah Cohen um, in Michigan, just incredibly supportive of the idea of open access from the start to finish. And um, so I think we profited greatly from publishers who see the way the scholarly publishing world is heading uh, and we're happy to embrace um, this project. Uh, So we were lucky uh, about that too.
0: I want to add one thought to that, and that is to expand on what Chuck just said about the University of Michigan Press. I mean, not only were they open to open access, but they were open to the idea of this book of collaboratively written essays when that is not the norm. So they were willing to take the, the, the chance, be creative, um, just take a leap. And I'm grateful to them for that.
2: Yeah, it sounds like you had a great community around you um, to really support this project and you know make it come to life. So I'm hoping that um, this will spark other, like I said, more dialogue about how to systemically kind of work towards something like this in the future. So I look forward to that. Um, and just kind of a more open-ended question. Um, and Chuck, you can take this one. Is there anything else about this volume that you'd like to Talk about or mention that we haven't already touched on?
3: Um, so, I mentioned before that um, Sounding Together took shape um, in some, at least parts of the book took shape uh, during the pandemic. Um, but there were other moments, other recent moments that I think really shaped the book that I don't think we have uh, underscored enough in terms of uh, ideas about both the Trump presidency and also ideas about um, race, power, um, social justice, et cetera. There are a few articles in particular um, that deal with um, ideas that flow from Black Lives Matter. I would would count three or four essays that respond in some way uh, to that fusion of activism um, and what might be possible in scholarship and what might be possible in teaching. Um, I'll mention two in particular that uh, engage at least with those general um, general points, and that is uh, a great um, article by Ellie Hassama and Lucy Vagnerova, which is called For the Daughters of Harlem. Um, it's a piece that chronicles a music and technology workshop held at Columbia University for young women of color from New York City public schools, um, um, and it is a workshop that they both Um, helped to put together and it's happened a few times. uh, And it's, uh, I would say it's an ethnographic, technological, um, powerful call for uh, social justice uh, in the academy in general. The other one that is uh, quite interesting, but maybe along broader lines, um, has to do with um, the changing academic job market with a special emphasis on what that means for younger scholars of color. Uh, this is a piece by uh, Michael Lee and Naomi Andre uh, working together, uh, one, a younger scholar from recent um, graduate from Harvard. Uh, I think one of the four graduate students were who were involved in, in this project or at least graduate school, graduate students when the project um, began and Naomi Andre uh, established, experienced, uh, influential professor at the University of Michigan. So that piece is called Finding Success Inside and Outside the Academy. Um, and it's, uh, uh, it's a great summary. And also um, I think uh, a piece full of some sadness um, and also aspiration um, uh, for what might, what might be better in the future. All
2: right. Um, well, thank you both so much for joining us here on the New Books Network. It's been a pleasure getting to know you all and hear about this project. Um, and speaking of which, uh, what else are both of you working on right now? Um, Carol, you can go first and then Chuck after.
0: Sure. Um, well, my focus over recent years has increasingly been on race and U.S. music and from various perspectives and also on public facing scholarship. I try occasionally to do a certain amount of journalism and reach out to a public beyond the academy. And I'll just single out two recent projects. One of them um, is at Harvard and actually has been collaborative, has involved a number of my colleagues there. Um, We're titling it the Eileen Southern Initiative. And one of its main results has been the development of a, a digital exhibit celebrating um, the life and work of Eileen Southern, who was a major African-American scholar. Her music, her book, The Music of Black Americans is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. She was the first black woman tenured at Harvard. Uh, This was in the 1970s. After she retired uh, in the 1980s, her presence on campus, her legacy was essentially erased. So this has been a kind of recuperative project trying to explore why that happened. She left a collection at the Harvard University Archives, and that's what we've principally been working on and working with. And all of this has unfolded during the pandemic. So it's been digital only in terms of the resources we've had. Um, Another is a book of my own that is in very much in midstream about racial segregation and classical music performance primarily in the early to mid 20th century. I'm trying to explore how Jim Crow practices were in place in major American musical institutions. For example, the Metropolitan Opera, the New York Philharmonic, most American opera companies and major symphony orchestras, and sort of what that meant. Um, and I'm, I'm just trying to get at the nitty gritty in an archival sense of, of how do they do this? and um, it's it's a buried story. It's it's a very upsetting one and a very toxic one in some ways. I believe personally, it's really important to understand to be able to move forward.
3: In terms of what I'm doing uh, now, I've been thinking in this conversation, obviously a lot about collaboration, and um, it's challenging me or it's it's uh, prompting me uh, to rethink how I answer this question. So my um I've been working um, We're studying mainly a different kind of collaboration between humans and machines. Um, I'm interested in some of my most recent um, presentations, for example, about the impact of artificial intelligence and AI technology on popular musicians and uh, artistic performance, copyright issues, et cetera. I've also done some work on... um, musicians and virtual reality uh, also involving ideas about uh, human-machine collaboration. And what I'm I'm thinking right now, I've started to run into limits of my own knowledge. I'm I'm able to uh, understand these subjects pretty well, uh, but not as well as I would like to. And I have a feeling, um, if I want to go further, uh, in these directions, I'm actually going to have to collaborate some more. Um, so my guess is that uh, if I go down this road, um, more that I'll, I'll probably end up uh, collaborating either with uh, people who are quite involved in the computing necessary to make some of these real, um, or maybe uh, working with um, some of the uh, artists and creative figures um, that, for example, design uh, virtual reality games or VR environments. I, I I, am thinking I'm going to have to be a collaborator, and that's probably a good idea.
0: Well, I just can't stop at this point. Carol, go ahead. Well, and in terms of future collaborations, I'm hoping that Chuck and I will find yet another project to be involved in together. I have no idea what that might be right now, but... Um, I think we're we're both sort of keeping our antennae <laughs> um, roaming to to come up with ideas. So very cool, and yeah. you collaborated on this podcast. So it just
2: keeps on going. So again, thank you both so much for being here. It was great to talk with you. Thank you. And. And uh, just really quick as a recap, listeners, um, you just heard an interview with Dr. Charles Hiroshi Garrett and Dr. Charles H. J. Oja, editors of the book Sounding Together, Collaborative Perspectives on U.S. Music in the 21st Century, published by University of Michigan Press in 2021. And this is Emily Allen, and I'll catch you next time here on the New Books Network.